Sure, Drew Timmy and Julian Strother are the obvious keys to a deep run for the Zags in March, but if they are making it back to the Final Four, it will be because of sophomore point guard Nolan Hickman. You can guarantee it. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Y'all, welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to give you daily reports through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sportsbook of the Locked On Podcast Network. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. All right, we're going to talk about the new WCC commissioner, Stu Jackson, and what his addition means for Gonzaga and their place in the conference going forward. We're also going to look at how Thursday's games could impact Gonzaga's seating on Selection Sunday. But first, in our final episode here at the Excalibur in Las Vegas, for those of you watching on YouTube, you'll see the normal background again next week. But we're going to start today's show. We're going to talk about Nolan Hickman because his growth this season while it doesn't always show up in the box score, has been critical to Gonzaga's success, and more importantly, will be crucial to what this team is trying to accomplish in March. There's no, it's not a secret that Nolan Hickman struggled earlier in the season. And there was a lot of factors there. I, I think you look at what he was tasked with doing, and it's not shocking we saw some struggles. He was a sophomore point guard who, yes, he played a decent amount as a freshman, but I think one thing that is important to remember about Nolan Hickman's freshman year is that he played a lot of the minutes that he played alongside Andrew Nembhard. Reason being is that if Nolan Hickman only played his minutes when Andrew Nembhard wasn't playing, Nolan Hickman wouldn't have played last year. Andrew Nembhard played 35, 38, 40 minutes regularly. There were multiple games that he did not come out at all. There were multiple games where he came out for a minute, two minutes, three minutes max. Nolan Hickman played well more than three minutes per game. I don't have it in front of me, but I think he played close to 20 minutes per night as a freshman. That means the majority of his action coming into his sophomore season was as an off-ball guard. Yes, occasionally Nembhard kind of came off the ball and, and Hickman was the one who brought it up. But by and large, Andrew Nembhard was a point guard. He was PG1, and when he was on the floor, he was running the show. So for Nolan Hickman, while he had a year of experience in Gonzaga's system under his belt, he didn't really have a year of experience as Gonzaga's point guard under his belt. So when he's first finally tasked with that role to be Gonzaga's point guard, he is doing it in against a ridiculous schedule. You guys know how, how crazy the non-conference schedule was. Gonzaga had a seven-game stretch early in the season. It was games two through eight. So taking out the North Florida game, games two through eight. Michigan State, Texas, Kentucky, Portland State, Purdue, Xavier Baylor. Obviously, there's kind of a, an anomaly there in Portland State, the first game Gonzaga played in the Phil Knight Invitational. But other than that, that is a every one of those teams is going to make the NCAA tournament. Every one of those teams is probably going to be a top, a single-digit seed in the NCAA tournament. I think the only team that is really questionable in that regard is Michigan State. Every other team is a good seed. Kentucky's has played their way into a good seed. Texas is going to be a two or a one seed. Baylor's probably going to be a three seed. Now Xavier's dropping a little bit, but they escaped with the win over DePaul, which would have significantly hurt their chances. Uh, Kentucky, obviously uh, we already mentioned them. They've played really well. Like this is a really, really good stretch of games that Gonzaga played in that stretch of game. Nolan Hickman, 29 minutes, 
eight and a half points, four assists, and 2.1 turnovers. There was a lot of attention on the turnover issues for Nolan Hickman as if four assists and two turnovers in a seven-game stretch against really, really good teams was – it's not good. I'm not going to pretend it's like a fantastic assist-to-turnover ratio. It's it's definitely not what you look for out of your point guard, but it wasn't this egregious number, and I distinctly remember we did a, a podcast at that time kind of comparing Nolan Hickman's first seven or eight games to – Kevin Pangos's first games, Josh Perkins's first games, Andrew Nemhart's first games, with the caveat of like, hey, Andrew Nemhart's first games as Gonzaga's point guard, he had two years of experience as a point guard at Florida. And so there was kind of some differences there, but Hickman stacked up fairly well. Now, what Hickman wasn't doing well at that time was scoring in general, but quite honestly, scoring any, any way other than from three. He was shooting 35% from three in that seven game stretch, but he shot 36% on two pointers. He wasn't getting to the rim. His floater game wasn't there. The mid-range wasn't there. Uh, Finishing around the rim was just basically non-existent. Since that time, since that seven-game stretch of games uh, for Gonzaga early in the season, his overall numbers don't look dramatically different. He averaged 8.6 points in that seven-game stretch. He averaged 8.5 points for the rest of the season. Quite literally, (laughs) as as close to exactly the same as you can possibly get. His assist numbers dropped. He averaged about four assists in those games. He dropped that down to three assists, but with about a one-point drop in assists, he also had his turnovers drop almost exactly the same. In fact, they actually dropped exactly the same, 0.9 less assists per game, 0.9 less turnovers per game. So, you know, with with the lack of assists, with a, a little bit of a drop in that, basically what happened is his role was slightly altered. And what came with that was an increased confidence in his ability to go get a basket when needed. He wasn't asked to just facilitate and shoot threes, to stand around the perimeter, pass the ball, shoot when he's open. Instead, he was able to get a little bit more creative, get more actions going towards the basket, coming off screens, playing off the ball. Part of that was the emergence of Hunter Salas coming into a role where he actually, when he's in the game, he often kind of takes a, a point guard role and, and, and Hickman kind of goes back to playing a little bit more off the ball. And I think that that has been something that has helped him. We've seen some of Gonzaga's other guard, Malachi Smith, occasionally brings the ball up. Julian Strother occasionally brings the ball up. Rasir Bolton occasionally brings the ball up. And for Hickman, if you look at the, if you kind of dig into the numbers a little bit more, like I said, a lot of the surface area numbers are going to look kind of the same. But here's a big one. Again, in that seven-game period of time, 36% on, on two-pointers. 53% since then. That is a huge difference. Huge difference. The number of points he's scoring is roughly the same, but he is taking way less shots to do it because he is finishing far more efficiently around the rim. We've seen him develop that little floater. It's not on the level of Malachi Smith or Julian Strothers necessarily, but it is still there. He's a little bit better at actually getting all the way to the basket. And I think he picks his moments a little bit better in terms of not driving into traffic and, and turning the ball over, which those guys are pretty good at not doing that either. But Hickman very rarely does that. And it's partly because he doesn't attack as often as those guys do. And I think, again, that's not something he's being asked to do quite as much. So, yes, the assist numbers dropped a little bit. But I think, again, that's that's less about certainly he's not becoming more of a ball hog. He just has the ball in his hands less. And I think that's created a situation where he has become more efficient when he does have the ball in his hands. We've also seen the three-point shooting. Again, he went from 35% in those seven games, which was fine, was far from bad. Since then, 39%. That's a big jump as well. Now that jump has is very, very, very 
backloaded by his last couple of games. Four or five three-point shooting against St. Mary's, five of six three-point shooting against Chicago State. You take those two games out, his three-point shooting is closer to that 35%. So again, it's a little bit top-loaded, but I'm not going to not. I mean, the Chicago State game, if you wanted to take that out, I could kind of understand not counting that, but it was a real game. The Eastern Oregon game is more one that you could probably take out, and Nolan Hickman was fantastic in that game, but so was everybody because they were playing in NAIA school. Uh, But for Hickman to hit four threes against St. Mary's on five attempts, I mean, that was a remarkable performance. When you talk about Nolan Hickman's kind of glow up and and looking at the, the numbers and the analytics and all that stuff, that game is proof of what a dynamic point guard can do. So many players played well against St. Mary's. That was why the game ended up being a 26-point blowout against a really, really good team in an intense rivalry. Anton Watson played great. Drew Timmy played great. Everybody seemed to play great in that one. But Nolan Hickman was really phenomenal. He distributed the ball well. He played very good defense. And I think that's kind of the big part as well about Hickman is his defense has improved in a way that isn't necessarily quantifiable, but has has really kind of you, you, he's getting more steals, which is one of the quantifiable ways. But more than that, his on ball defense is just better. He's just smarter. He's not reaching. He's not causing fouls. He's not letting he's not getting burned by opposing guards. He's keeping them in front of him and playing good pressure defense. Guard play is critical in March. We know that. I know that, you know that, everybody listening knows that. It's just the way that it is. Both of Gonzaga's national championship appearances had two point guards starting. Nigel Williams, Gosh, and Josh Perkins in 2017, and Jalen Suggs and Andrew Nembhard in 2021. This team doesn't quite have that, and Hickman certainly isn't on the level of those guys quite yet, but he's playing like it right now. And that does that's all that really matters. I don't care what Jalen Suggs did in November. I care what Jalen Suggs did in March. I only care what Nolan Hickman's going to do in March. Is he going to have a tremendous run like those guys have had? I don't know. Probably not because it's really, really difficult to do. And he has not necessarily at that level, but is he capable of it? After watching him hit four threes against one of the best defensive teams in the entire country, worth pointing out, Gonzaga made four threes against St. Mary's in their first game. Nolan Hickman made four against them in their third game. If he can do that, this team has a really, really high ceiling in March. The WCC has a new commissioner in Stu Jackson, hear his background and what his appointment means for Gonzaga and their place in this conference going forward after a word from today's sponsor, FanDuel. The midway point of the NBA season is here, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sports book, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet of up to $1,000. That's bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and Super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores and threes drained. Maybe you like DeMontis Sabonis to keep putting up huge numbers for Sacramento. Maybe you like Zach Collins in his new role with the Spurs to keep up the high production. Maybe you want to make an exclusive bet like Corey Kispert hitting two threes in the first three minutes of Washington's next game. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet of up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. All right, segment two, still your patents, still Locked on Zags. And I want to thank all of you for making Locked on Zags your first listen of the day and remind you, especially as we get to Selection Sunday, to check out the Locked on College Basketball Podcast. It's hosted by myself and Isaac Shade of Locked on Tar Heels. We're five days a week giving you everything you need to know about college basketball, bubble upsets. We're talking 
coaching changes, which we've already seen a handful of this year. We're talking Selection Sunday. We're going to preview every big game in the NCAA tournament. It is the perfect time to check out the show. You can find it on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this is kind of old news. We haven't talked about the new WCC commissioner yet, but we had some games that we wanted to cover earlier in the week, and I thought that was a little bit more important to talk about Gonzaga shellacking St. Mary's on Tuesday night. Uh, but now we have some time. We're waiting for Selection Sunday to figure out where the Zags are going to end up. We'll talk about that more in the third and final segment of today's show. But I wanted to get an opportunity to kind of give you all an update on who Stu Jackson is, his appointment as the WCC commissioner, some of the quotes that were thrown out there from Jackson himself, from Thane McCullough, the president of Gonzaga, uh, and even from Brett Yormack, the commissioner at the Big 12, and kind of what, where we're at with all of that. So for starters, we'll talk about Jackson. Jackson is replacing Gloria Navarez. Gloria was the commissioner for the WCC for quite a while. She took the same role at the Mountain West. I'm going to miss Gloria. She was a guest on the podcast, fantastic commissioner. But I'm excited about Stu Jackson as well. He was the associate commissioner of the Big East prior to this promotion. So he is very, very involved in college basketball's landscape right now. I think of any conference where you'd want somebody to have just recently been affiliated, the Big East makes perfect sense because they are not dealing with football. They, you know, somebody comes in from a football conference, they have to kind of adjust because you're not dealing with that amount of money and that amount of resources and facilities and, and everything that comes with football. And I'm not knocking football. It's just, a, it's a different thing. It's a completely different animal for the Big East. The Big East is the highest level of college basketball schools that exist. Gonzaga is that. St. Mary's is, is that, quite honestly. Santa Clara, those schools are a little bit below that, but they're in that conversation, certainly. You want somebody who has experience dealing with high-profile college basketball programs because you envision yourself as being high-profile college basketball programs. Again, Gonzaga and St. Mary's are. They don't envision themselves as that. They are actually that. But so does the rest of the conference. They want to get there. So I think having somebody with that kind of background helps. Jackson is also just a West Coast guy. I know that I just mentioned his background. Recent background was in the Big East, but he played basketball at Oregon. He also played basketball at Seattle University. And I quickly want to talk about this. This might end up being a longer conversation we have sometime in the offseason, but that that's a pretty strong connection for Stu Jackson to have at a school that makes sense in a lot of ways for the WCC. Something to keep a very close eye on. I don't think Seattle U is quite there yet. I can tell you for a fact that they are working on facilities right now. And have, I worked there. I went there. 2015 was when I was a student there. And what they were talking about then on a regular basis, how do we get in the WCC? That was the conversation in 2015. I guarantee you it is still the conversation to this day. And this appointment, Stu Jackson doesn't have a super tight connection to Seattle U that I can see, but he went there. He got his degree from there. Something to keep an eye on. Stu Jackson also worked with Rick Pitino at Providence in the 1980s, which I don't think has a specific connection, but is just an interesting note. Uh, he also coached at Wisconsin for a few seasons and was the general manager of the Memphis Grizzlies. I don't want this to alarm anybody. The Grizzlies, during his time as their general manager, went 78 and 300, which is not great. I said Memphis Grizzlies. They were the Vancouver Grizzlies at the time uh, and were a, a new franchise, so we should give Jackson a little bit of a, a break there. But whew, they were not a good basketball team when he was at the helm of that team. Jackson spoke to media at, in Las Vegas, kind of at the start of the WCC tournament. He said all the right things. He wants to help the member schools succeed. He respects the school's kind of values and who they are as institutions outside of just their sports accomplishments. He wants to focus on all sports, not just men's basketball. And he talked about NIL. And he said, quite frankly, that 
And I, the Big East struggled to figure out what their role as a conference, like their role as as front office people in the conference, was in terms of aiding and abetting with with NIL. And I thought that was a, a good answer because nobody really knows <laughs> because the NIL has been this wild, wild west situation. And while I have maintained my belief that student athletes should have a lot of autonomy there. It's clear that there are not any really rules in place by the NCAA. And I think that Jackson admitting, yeah, we didn't really know what to do, but we're trying to figure out and we want to make sure that we're, you know, helping our student athletes succeed and our member institutions succeed. Again, it's kind of performative. I, I, I'm going to be more excited when I see him do that rather than just him saying the right things, but it's at least good that he's saying the right things. <laughs> like you, you can't get mad at him for not having done anything yet. He's just getting started. In fact, he's not even going to start until April, but he is saying the right stuff. And that's a good start. That's a good start. Uh, President Gonzaga President Thane McCullough had some quotes as well. He had a huge role in helping pick Stu Jackson and said that the vote of the people who, who made this decision was unanimous, which is always a good sign that people were very excited and on board with bringing Stu Jackson on. And they did kind of touch on realignment, which is obviously a big conversation around Gonzaga right now. No real concrete answers, although I think you're reading through the, the lines and kind of both, both the quotes that, that McCullough and Stu Jackson had. It doesn't sound like either of them are expecting Gonzaga to be out the door anytime soon. And that's kind of the, the sense that we've been getting other places as well. Now, Thane did say that Gonzaga is exploring conference realignment. He didn't, he, he didn't beat around the bush on that. He didn't say, oh, no, we're just we're happy in the WCC and we're, we're not looking at anything else. He said they're exploring it. And he acknowledged that part of the exploration process involves making sure that you're joining, an inst- or joining a conference with institutions that are of a similar mindset in ways outside of athletics, academically, all of that stuff. And I think that that is going to present a potential hurdle for Gonzaga eventually. Whether it's a hurdle that is impenetrable for them, hard to say. I don't imagine that an actual invitation from the Big 12 with a solid financial package, which is a huge factor, would persuade the Zags to not do it, even if some of the schools in the Big 12 don't necessarily align with Gonzaga philosophically in some ways. But I don't know. I don't know. I think it's fair that they're acknowledging that that is a factor in what they're determining here. Stu Jackson basically said, I'm not getting the sense that Gonzaga is going anywhere anytime soon. But yes, we are hoping to keep them happy. We want to keep them here. We want to focus on all the member institutions. And he also acknowledged they are you know, going to continue to look to, to add to the conference with BYU's departure, which is why I kind of gave you the wink, wink, nod, nod on Seattle U, although uh, I'm not sure that they're quite ready to get there. I, there aren't a lot of uh, super appealing options for the WCC right now, so we'll kind of see how, how that shakes out. But I think it's also worth pointing out that Brett Yormark had recent comments about Gonzaga. Yormark is the commissioner of the Big 12, so obviously the, the biggest player in terms of whether Gonzaga is going to end up in the WCC or in the P- Big 12. And he basically said, yeah, I like Gonzaga. I've talked to Gonzaga. I'm interested in Gonzaga, but right now I am focused on and I don't know exactly how he phrased it, but basically figuring out if the Pac-12 is about to implode or not, which is which is the situation. I mean, of course, that's the biggest thing going on in the Big 12 right now. If the four corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Stanford, or excuse me, uh, Utah, if they don't want to stay in the Pac-12 and they want to come to the Big 12, the Big 12 is going to prioritize that, and they totally should. What that then means for the Pac-12 is anybody's guess. Maybe it just dissolves entirely. Maybe they start grabbing a bunch of schools from the Mountain West and creating a fairly weak power five conference. Maybe they do pursue Gonzaga. Maybe Gonzaga shows interest in that. Who, who knows? Lots of things there. It's going to be interesting. I don't get the sense that Gonzaga is going to make a move unless they feel that it is a pretty permanent move and the perfect place to be. 
by which I mean, if the Big 12 does pull the corner schools, they're probably going to say, hey, we're done with realignment for a while. I, that doesn't necessarily mean Gonzaga is going to say, well, I guess we'll just jump to the new look Pac-12 that includes Boise State and San Diego State and whomever else uh, and just say, OK, well, that's an upgrade for us. So we're done. I think they might just say, well, we're just going to stay here and wait and see what happens. Maybe something happens with the Big East. Maybe the Pac-12 and the ACC form some kind of coastal alliance, which has been discussed. Maybe something else changes and Gonzaga gets invited to another. Who knows? There's a lot of different things that could happen. And I don't think Gonzaga is in a place where they're feeling at all desperate. So I don't expect them to make any moves unless they get an opportunity that absolutely knocks their socks off. And quite honestly, I don't see that happening anytime super soon. All right, closing out the show, discussing some results around college basketball that could impact Gonzaga's seed on Selection Sunday. But first, a word from today's sponsor, Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat, but you don't want all of the fat and calories, then you have got to try a Built Bar. We're in March. It's a hard time to not be eating while watching all those basketball games. I know I want to eat a little bit healthier this year. And if you're like me, where you want to eat healthier, but you don't want to compromise taste, then I've got just the thing for you. You've got to try Built. With Built, healthy is actually tasty. Seriously. They are so delicious that you will not think they are good for you. What makes Built Bars so good? Well, for starters, they're covered in 100% real chocolate. That's right. Real chocolate. And they come in unbelievable flavors like churro, peanut butter, brownie, and coconut almond. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like a candy bar while maintaining amazing macros. And what's even better is that they are healthy. They only have 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and 17 grams of protein. And now you don't need to wait around to get a box. For years, we've been talking about ordering your Built Bars at Built.com. Now you can get them at your local Walmart or Sam's Club. Head to your nearest Walmart today, walk to the pharmacy section, and you can pick up a 4-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, or coconut puffs today. All right, segment three, still any patents, still locked on Zags. And I kind of want to switch over to talk about a few of the results we have seen. I'm just going to tell you right now, I am recording this on Thursday evening. So some of the games that are going to impact Gonzaga's potential standing in terms of where they are in the two seed, three seed, all of that, haven't finished yet. Arizona, for example, they are currently playing Stanford as I'm talking to you right now. It is a close game. I do not know how that game is going to end. And that... By the time you're listening to this is a result that has happened. But I will talk about the ones that we do know and kind of what the ideal situation is for Gonzaga. Right now, and this didn't seem possible until very recently, Gonzaga could end up with a two seed in either Sacramento or Denver. That is the dream. A West Coast two seed is the dream. Outside of that, there could there is an option to be a two seed out east or there is an option to be a three seed in Denver. I know there was some conversation on my Twitter feed earlier today about kind of whether it would be better to be a two seed in Albany or a three seed in Denver. And I think that that is a, a fair conversation. I think there's going to be some kind of differences of opinions there. I think Gonzaga would rather be a two seed. They don't care about the travel, but yes, traveling is hard and going to all the way to the East coast with a short amount of time to, to kind of prepare it is difficult, but I think that you want the highest seed. You want to feel like you earned a two seed. And I think this team has proven that they are capable of being a two seed and there's teams around them that are helping them out. Like I said, if Arizona loses to Stanford, that is a massive help for Gonzaga. If they do not, if they win this game, then we will kind of see what happens after that. But Baylor already lost. Baylor lost early in the Big 12 tournament to Iowa State. For the record, Iowa State has been a, a mid-level, at times very good, at times not so good team in the Big 12. But for some reason, they really have Baylor's number. Uh, and they lost to Iowa State. That probably bumps Baylor from a 2 to a 3. Like that almost certainly does. Baylor kind of stumbled down the stretch a little bit. So if Baylor ends up as a three seed, 
Arizona ends up losing here, that changes the conversation for them quite a bit. Now, another factor, especially when you're looking at the two West Coast number two seeds, is UCLA. Because right now, Joe Lenardi has, has UCLA as a one seed. I quite honestly don't think that's going to stick. I did. And if you listen to Locked On College Basketball Podcast, you know that I did pick UCLA to be my last number one seed before the Jalen Clark injury. Jalen Clark, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, a guy who averages 13.6 rebounds a game for them. He is out indefinitely. He is out for the rest of the tournament. That has been leaked information that has come out that reporters have, have confirmed in places like ESPN have confirmed it. So it's not a it's not a rumor. It's a real thing. He's out. He's done. The committee in the past, when they hear about significant injuries, they take that into consideration. They might bump UCLA down to a two-seat, especially if either Texas or Purdue does enough in their respective conference tournaments to earn that final one seed. Houston, Alabama, Kansas, they got it locked up, barring a shocking result in their conference tournaments. That final one seed was either UCLA's, Purdue's, or Texas's. Texas escaped. If they win the Big 12, they're probably in. They probably get it. Purdue, if they win the Big 10, even though the Big 10 isn't as good as the Big 12, I think they probably get that spot. UCLA, maybe they win the Pac-12. Maybe they beat Arizona. Maybe they still get that final spot. I'm just a lot less confident that they do. I think UCLA is going to be one of those West Coast two seeds. And I think Gonzaga has a very good chance to be that other West Coast two seed, especially if... UCLA beats Arizona, for example, if or if Stanford beats Arizona. If you're listening to this right now and Stanford has beat Arizona, I feel real good about Gonzaga's chances of being that two-seed out west. Marquette also barely escaped with a win over St. John's. That's another game to kind of keep an eye on. It doesn't have a huge ramification necessarily. Uh, had Marquette lost to St. John's, that probably would have helped Gonzaga just because Marquette's a team that could potentially jump onto the two-line as well. If they win the Big East tournament, I think they have to win the Big East tournament to jump from a three to a two-seed. Barely beating St. John's would have, if they'd lost again, it would have hurt them. But again, they're still in it. So they have an opportunity to still win that Big East tournament uh, at the Madison Square Garden and potentially move up from there. Uh, still a lot of basketball to be played as we're recording this again Thursday evening. We'll talk more on social media as we get up to Selection Sunday and, of course, figuring out where the Zags are. That's all we're going to talk about on Monday. I do want to do mailbag. Some of you have submitted mailbag questions for the last week or so. We didn't do it last week because we were previewing Gonzaga's tournament games. So if you had submitted questions, hang tight. I do plan to get to them, assuming they are still relevant questions to answer. If you still want to ask questions either before Selection Sunday or after Selection Sunday, just know that I'm probably not going to get to them on Monday's show, but I'm hoping to do a select or a mailbag on either Tuesday or Wednesday. So definitely get those questions sent out to me if you so choose. All right, that is going to do it for me today and for this week. Folks, we're here. The next time we talk on the Locked on Zags podcast, we will know where and when and who the Zags are playing in the NCAA tournament. It is the most wonderful time of the year. I am so excited to share another NCAA tournament with you all. Uh, check out the podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can find us on YouTube if you haven't done so yet. Go to YouTube.com, search Locked on Zags, hit that big red subscribe button. We are over 1,200 subscribers. Would love to get to 1,300 or at least 1,250 before the end of the NCAA tournament. So if you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed, again, very simple to do so. Also, go ahead and go subscribe to the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Our goal was 1,000 by the start of the NCAA tournament. We're not quite there, but I bet we can get there by the end of the NCAA tournament. So go give us a subscribe or a, go hit the like button and hit a subscription button for us over there as well. All right. Thank you all for listening. Happy Selection Sunday and go Zags.